0: Hello everyone and welcome to the first in our new series of risk and regulation rundown podcasts where we'll be discussing the latest risk and regulatory developments affecting the financial services industry. We'll share some insights from our work with clients and we'll share our perspective on industry talking points. As we all know, our industry is evolving significantly and is being disrupted by changes in customer expectations, technological advances and regulatory demands. We hope that the insights we'll provide to you will play a part in helping you navigate your way through this changing landscape. So my name's Sarah Eisted, and I'm privileged to lead our Financial Services Risk and Regulatory Practice at PwC. And I'll be your regular host and will be joined by a range of guests each month. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Naseem, Danish Zadeh and Arthur hughes Hallett. We're going to be talking about how we're helping clients overcome challenges relating to LIBOR transition and how disruption is affecting financial services firms more broadly. So firstly, Nassim. we hear a lot about LIBOR transition.
1: What is it? So I think most people will be familiar with the term LIBOR. Um, it, I think what will surprise people is how vastly used that rate is. Um, it's, at this point, used in 300 or so trillion dollars' worth um, of financial products globally. Wow. Um, so it started off um, for specific products, but it's just grown over decades. Um, the rate is um, issued across five different currencies and a bunch of maturities up to a year. Um, and. The scale of products it's um, used in covers derivatives as well as a whole host of cash products. So, this journey really started um, for firms in 2017 when Andrew Bailey um, made a speech and said um, he's no longer going to compel banks um, that submit to LIBOR anymore, hence, kind of like there's going to be an end to this rate. And really, a lot of people um, think that LIBOR transition, which is effectively LIBOR moving to some alternative rates that um, central working groups have come up with, um, is something something that happened because of the manipulation um, cases that were in the press around LIBOR. But really it's because the regulator and central banks strongly feel like there's not enough transactions behind the rate. And so they're really encouraging hard, um, slash pushing um, firms to move away from the rate um, to other rates.
0: So given the sheer um, scale, that LIBOR has used, you you use that figure there. What are firms doing in response to get ready for using new rates?
1: Well, um, quite a bit. Um, And a lot of that um, happened off the back of further speeches and pushing by global regulators. But they are mobilizing their programs. um, And when when those firms have real scale, um, those programs need to be cross-divisional. They need to be cross-geography as well. Um, They're looking very basically as a starting point at what is our exposure here? What exposure do we have across different products um, to these eyeball rates um, and across our different businesses and geographies? So they've collated that metric. Um, They are playing an increasing role, first started with mainly the sell side, but now the buy side is playing a real role as well into inputting into central working groups that have developed um, in each of the key jurisdictions around IBOR transition. Um, So there's one in the UK that's um, uh, set up by the Bank of England. Uh, So they will also be quite actively um, inputting into consultations around some of the solutions that need to exist for eyeball transition. Um, They're heavily educating themselves, um, meaning people within the firms. um, And also, they've started to educate their clients um, around eyeball transition, so that when they come to renegotiate some of these existing contracts, um, they're dealing with an educated client on the other side. Other key things is thinking through the risks. Eyeball transition, unfortunately, is fraught with quite a lot of risk. There's conduct risk, financial risk, operational risk. Um, There's market and credit and funding implications um, as well to it. Um, They're also coming up with their strategy, their business strategy. How do they plan to develop new products or consume new products, depending on what part of the market you sit on? And what's their strategy in terms of thinking about the legacy book or the back book, i.e. the existing positions that already reference Eiball that need to get off of the rate before the end of 2021. And other um, things um, that firms are doing is starting, um, and I think we'll talk about it a bit later, but thinking about the contracts challenge um, and some of the heavy lift that needs to happen around technology models and processes operationally.
0: And I'm pleased you mentioned contract repapering, because I know from talking to a range of clients, that's um, very high up on their agenda currently. So what are they having to do to look at how they repaper what I imagine is a huge number of contracts?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, a lot of firms are just starting the journey on contract repapering. The very first basic thing to do is figure out where all your contracts are, right? And you. Um, it, it, just finding the contracts and putting them into a central place or inventorying them if you don't want them in a central place, just having a central log of them um, is an early Um, tasks that firms are undertaking, and then I think the question becomes, how do we tackle this? Um, And that really is something that's predicated on the size and scale of the issue for firms. Um, If you have huge size and scale in terms of eyeball contracts, you probably want to start thinking about a technology solution to it. Um, And that's um, something that may also support um, and help your firm going forward outside of the eyeball space. So digitizing their contracts, um, making them machine readable, and then starting to interrogate them for what clauses um, does eyeball transition touch and impact so that you can know what you need to change um, as part of the transition.
0: Brilliant. So alongside the contract repapering, um, I'm aware that there's been a recent letter from the regulators to the chief execs um, of a range of firms about the LIBOR transition programmes. What's in that letter and how are firms responding?
1: Yeah, just for those that aren't um, familiar with the regulatory response to LIBOR transition, the. They're called Dear CEO letters, but you're right, Sarah, the letters that went to chief executives around this. Um, The first one was issued, actually, in September of 2018. And it went from the UK regulator, the PRA and the FCA, um, just to the larger banks and insurers, um, asking them about their IBOR transition plans and programs, um, and urging them strongly to ensure that they're board approved and that they have a senior manager responsible for it under the senior manager regime. So this recent one is, I don't think um, by accident, on the anniversary of that original letter, so September 2019. And it's gone to a much broader um, set of firms that are supervised by the UK regulator. Um, Effectively, the purpose being to catalyze transition. What does it ask for? Um, It asks for detailed exposures. Um, that I mentioned earlier, firms are collating, um, but it will push those that are not to collate them. um, And they ask for many detailed cuts of that data by product or counterparty linked to contracts. Um, They're also keen to know if you're continuing to issue eyeball products and what were the obstacles to not using the new rates um, instead of libor. as well as that, they've asked for, um, in the body of the letter, um, some uh, views from firms around their programs and plans, how they're progressing, as well as quantification of some of the risks that the regulator is, believes is high, um, and are high, quite frankly, around eyeball transition, such as conduct risk, operational risk, and implications of market and credit risk.
0: Brilliant. Um, That's great. Thank you, Naz. I know we could speak for a long time on this. And I know you've got some thoughts about opportunities coming out of the LIBOR transition uh, programmes, which we'll we'll come back to. But in the meantime, um, LIBOR is just one of the ways uh, that our industry is being disrupted. Um, And I'm joined now by Arthur, um, who leads our work on disruption in financial services. And I suppose, Arthur, I'll start uh, with a simple question for you as well. What do we mean by
1: disruption?
2: Uh, Sarah, that's a great question and one I suppose I have to answer as it's technically in my job title. Uh, so what what we mean by disruption uh, for us is it has to have three things. It has to be industry-wide. So it can't be something uh, like an individual product. It has to be something like you know, an ETF, for example, data funds. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, it, it has to change consumer value. So what do I mean by that uh, is it has to change the type of uh, value which the consumer gets and that doesn't necessarily have to be financial value, it could be speed, it could be personalization. and finally the third thing we think is important from a disruption perspective is thinking about uh, the change in how people make money. So it would be the difference between an active fund manager and a robo-advisor would be two different ways. You know, it's the similar product, but two totally different ways of making money from that product. Uh, so that's how we um, view disruption.
0: Thank you, Arthur. So that's a great uh, definition with the three aspects of that. A lot of our listeners will be from compliance and risk functions. So how do you think disruption impacts on those functions?
2: Yeah, sure. So for me, I think there's two things. There's about the internal side of thing and there's the external as well. So let's think about internal first. So let's take an example. Uh, A big tech provider has just announced, or announced a while ago, that they will be able to approve any loan under 25K in about 10 minutes-ish on average. So what does that mean for a compliance professional? That means most processes now done by risk and compliance have to be automated. It's It's not just a maybe it's that they have to if they want to match that type of product offering. So for me that's the internal side of things. And then from an external side of thing it's about thinking maybe slightly kind of broader than the and maybe we have before so thinking about, you know, from a climate change perspective what effects might that have on the clients I'm serving. So an insurer just announced that they would no longer insure any clients who derive more than 30% of their revenue from coal. You know, would you, as a risk and plan, i mean, I certainly wouldn't—but would you, as a risk and compliance officer, be thinking about that now? And maybe that's something which we need to start driving into the process.
0: Yeah, uh, brilliant. So, so you've touched upon there um, an example of where we're starting to see disruption happen in mm-hmm. some um, sectors. Can you give me some other examples of where we're seeing disruption already happening?
2: Yeah, sure. So we do lots of work with investment banks as well. And one of their big concerns is the idea that the public market uh, as we know it is starting to recede. So that, that key kind of – there's two lines. One is uh, the lines of IPOs is going down uh, and the other is the line of mergers and et cetera going up. And what that means is there are simply less public markets around. So. One of the key disruptions is this idea that in the future, there are going to have to be more clients, more firms, more products Focus on how do we serve that private market? And that's a market which we know less about. So how are we going to have to change and
0: evolve to that? Great. And when you think about the future, can you give us an example of an area that's ripe for disruption?
2: Um, yeah, I certainly can, although, Uh, I would caveat this by the fact that that this is the question most commonly asked and for us this is thinking about uh, systematically about what are the enablers of disruption and where do we see the greatest level of maturity so we think some of those enablers are things like your workforce uh, how much funding you have uh, what type of technology is in play obviously regulations are really important thing and also how what's your consumer like how sticky are they how likely are they to flip to a another provider. So that's kind of if all of those are mature, we see that that could potentially be ripe right for disruption. So those were very mature in something like transactions, so challenger banks being a great example of that, seizing on that maturity. And we're starting to see this in the insurance space as well, where stuff like sort of some fundamental assumptions which which companies have based their business models on are starting to change. So one example is the notion of why should uh, you pay for your insurance annually? So why should you insure something annually like a car, when you might only use it for 100 hours a year? So why should you do that in the future? And I think that fundamentally changes almost everything about a company. If people start insuring things by the hour, if they start insuring things via t- telematics, the processes around those products have to fundamentally change as well. So that's I, I think insurance in particular. Consumer-facing insurance is a huge area right for disruption.
0: Great. And I always like to think if we look 10 years into the future and look back, you know, what will we think, what on earth will we do in 10 years ago? And I think that, that could be a great example of that. Now, for firms, how should they make the most of the opportunity that disruption brings? I think some are focused on it being a negative and, and risk and challenge. But I think we see it as a huge opportunity. So how do they make the most of that?
2: Yeah. yeah, so for us, this was when we first started talking to our clients about this, it was constantly, why are we going to lose our customers? How are we going to lose our market share? What type of products are no longer going to exist in the future? But actually, for us, it's about thinking, yes, this could be a risk. But also, if you look at the flip side of it, you know, this is a whole new set of customers coming into the market. This is a whole new set of products. This is people losing their, you know, their market dominance many would view that as a fantastic market condition to enter into. So we see it as an opportunity, but it's only an opportunity if you move fast enough. So for us, and what we're advising our clients on at the moment, is about how do we invest at the right time? How do we move at the right time? And for us, this is mostly about thinking how do you use the, the data you already have Uh, to make that kind of informed decision.
0: Great, thank you, um, Arthur. So so Nassim, you were talking earlier about some of the opportunities for firms through the the LIBOR transition process. Um, Is it a similar position um, in that regard in terms of being first to
1: market on things, or are there some risks associated with it from your perspective? I mean, I think um, there are risks. Um, So people and firms need to weigh that up But I think on the opportunities point, there's definitely opportunities in the new markets as you develop these new RFR products. Um, And there is an advantage to being first out to market in areas where you're a market leader or want to be perceived as a market leader. I also think there's other opportunities for firm in terms of making this a smooth customer journey um, for for firms. Um, I think most customers would view this as being quite a significant impact on them. And so having partnering up with um, a firm that makes that as easy as possible for them um, is gonna be an advantage. Um, And last but not least, I think there are some real operational advantages to LIBOR transition. There are certain operational challenges that people, quite frankly, haven't looked to solve. um, But IBOR transition is going to force them into it. And thinking about them strategically um, is a good place to be, such as the contracts repapering challenge we talked about. legal departments have been looking for a while to have their contracts digitised and machine readable and capturing all that data in one place. Um, I think legal departments will jump up and down at the concept that some of those clauses will be more standardised um, rather than different um, terms for different um, agreements that have happened over time. So um, there's lots of operational um, opportunities as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I
0: I think it's a really good message there in terms of looking for the opportunity um, and making the most of it, rather than focusing on some of the challenges um, as well that come through, through disruption and and some of the change. So I know we could carry on for some time. uh, But that's it for this month. So a huge thank you to Nassim and to Arthur for joining us. Please subscribe to keep up to date with all future episodes um, of our podcast. And don't forget to rate and review us. We'll look forward to speaking to you next month.